Hello, everybody. This is Rob Pass, the host of the podcast. I hope everybody enjoys this week's replay episode of 187 with living legend Roberta Williams. We'll be back next week with a brand new, fresh episode. Enjoy. Pediatric Cardiology Today. My name is Dr. Robert Pass, and I'm the host of this podcast. I am professor of pediatrics at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, where I'm also the chief of pediatric cardiology. Thank you for joining us for our 187th episode of the podcast. Today we have an extra special episode. Dr. Sarah Pratton, who's a third-year cardiology fellow at Cincinnati Children's Hospital and will soon be the interventional cardiology fellow at Toronto Sick Kids Hospital, has kindly agreed once again to be our co-host. She's going to interview the wonderful pioneer in pediatric cardiology, Roberta Williams. Therefore, let's get straight on to Dr. Pratton's introduction of Dr. Williams and then her conversation with this icon. Dr. Roberta Williams has had an extraordinary career, spanning five decades with incredible contributions to cardiology and is a true pioneer of echocardiography. She developed the basis of definitive non-invasive diagnoses of various forms of congenital heart disease. She completed her medical school at the University of North Carolina, followed by medicine and pediatrics residency, and did her adult and pediatric cardiology fellowship at Boston Children's and Massachusetts General Hospital. She went on to become director of the echocardiography lab, which was one of the first in the nation at Boston Children's in 1973, as well as the first founding medical director of the CICU. She has served as chief of pediatric cardiology at UCLA, chair of pediatrics at UNC and USC, and vice president for pediatrics and academic affairs at CHLA. I'm truly honored and grateful for the opportunity to speak with her. Hi, Dr. Williams. How are you? Doing great, thanks. Thank you so much again um, for taking the time to join us tonight. I'm really excited to hear about your career, your story, and all of your experiences, and sharing that with all of the listeners today. Well, it's it's great for me. It's only five o'clock my time, and a little bit later your time, dinner time, I guess. What I wanted to start off with, I don't think that you really need much introduction because your career has been inspiring and illustrious and over the past few decades has paved the way in multiple areas of cardiology. But I wanted to hear about your story and what led you to cardiology um, years ago? What attracted you to it? Well, I um, was referred to see Dr. Elian Tausig when I was a preteen or early teen and had a heart cath. This was back in the earliest days of heart cath. <clears throat> and I just thought the whole thing was so fascinating. I, I met these um, the other kids that had complex diseases. I turned out to have nothing, <laughs> but <laughs> I was saved from the knife. Uh, by a catheter, by a catheterization. Uh, but the whole time I was being cath, it was sort of like, what's that machine? And what's that machine? And what does that do? Um, and I was just really fascinated by it. And the other thing was that I was, I think I was 5'10 and 105 pounds. <laughs> Glasses and kinky red hair and braces and freckles. And uh, I, I, I 
Dr. Talsi, you know, came in and she was tall and bespeckled and people really listened to what she had to say. And she always had this, this flank of residents and um, interns in those days. They, they didn't have fellows, really. <laughs> um, uh, and she would be teaching them palpation because by that time, I think she'd lost a lot of her hearing. And, and um, I just thought that watching her teach and l looking at all the people who were interested, um, it just looked like a fun life. Mm -hmm. So at that point, I decided that I was going to be a cardiologist. Now, there was no such thing as a pediatric cardiologist. I mean, there was not a concept yet. Uh, to speak of. Certainly, I would never have heard of it. So it was cardiology. And then um, by the time I was a senior in high school, I wrote my senior theme on new techniques in heart surgery and was deep into the uh, library, uh, medical library, you know, reading about techniques for going on heart-lung bypass and how you sutured the, the KV to blah, blah. And so I was like totally, uh, you know, entranced. Um, and then when I I got through medical uh, through undergraduate school early because I took too many semester hours and ended up with a job in cardiology at UNC Chapel Hill. Mm -hmm. And I was doing heart sound recordings and. Uh, vector cardiograms and uh, radio telemetry monitoring and all these fun things, mm -hmm. uh, which then when I went to medical school, I, I was exposed to adult cardiology, which I just knew cardiology. And, oh, I was so, so disappointed because it, it was kind of boring. <laughs> And my, one of my interns when I was a medical student said, you've got to go and do a uh, rotation up at Boston Children's Hospital. And he even filled out the application for me and everything. So up I went and it was just heaven. It was all the things I had wanted to do. So I, I, I was sort of a congenital cardiologist, congenital because... I was kind of born that way. <laughs> I like that. Wow. It's amazing to think that that experience that you had with Dr. Tausig as a patient, even, I mean, clearly she's, you know, inspirational to everybody within the field, but as a patient, I mean, that interaction was clearly very memorable for you. Well, and I think we have to remember that we have that impression on a lot of kids Mm -hmm. A lot of children as they're growing up, we really represent something in their lives. And everything we say has an impact mm -hmm. on children and their families. I've heard families come back 30 years later saying, we'll never forget what you said. And I go, oh, no, what, what, <laughs> what was that? <laughs> and a lot of times I, when, when they say it, I know I did not say it exactly like that but, <laughs> but it's been their mantra since that time and mm -hmm. that we just have to 
be very aware of the impact that we have. And that's a lot of why I think those who are listening went into pediatrics and into pediatric cardiology Mm -hmm. uh, because they really wanted to have an impact on people at an important time of their lives. So it's, it's, it wasn't just me. It's that we're all spreading that seed. Thank you for that reminder. I think, like you said, exactly our everything about our interaction with patients, the, the parents, the child, our body language, you know, our words clearly weigh so much. And it's a good reminder, despite, you know, all the busyness that we get caught up in, it's, it's important to take that time, sit down with the patient and choose your words carefully and be mindful of how you come across. And in that regard, I always try to find something, some little remark, some time in that visit that's affirming to the child that mm-hmm. makes them feel proud because you just, you never know if it's going to have an impact or not, mm-hmm. but it could. Do you have any particular memories or particularly fond memories when you had that interaction or it's kind of every interaction? Every interaction, every yeah. single one. And it's interesting as well, because now we see not only children, even though, you know, a lot of us are trained pediatricians, some of us are med peds trained like yourself, who are seeing now children, babies, and up to adults now. And it's a completely different type of interaction, I think, with the children and with the adults. And I think it provides a lot of diversity to visits as well, getting to interact with patients at any age. But you were drawn to taking care of children throughout adulthood, right? Yeah. I I was, I I always say I was a, what was it? I was a designer, a failed designer model, (laughs) because actually uh, Dr. Natus and Dr. Jean Brownwall had a conversation about creating something. Yeah, no, I always said I was a failed prototype. That's what I was. (laughs) And uh, when I came up to visit Dr. Natus, and it turned out that I was going to go do med peds, which in those days was one year of pediatrics and one year of medicine. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was supposed to be uh, an, an extra divided year, but I skipped out again as usual early <laughs> and did my fellowship. But so I spent uh, a year of my time. Uh, mostly over at Mass General and adult cardiology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's been really interesting to not only take care of, uh, of adults, and mostly in my case now, young adults, but mm-hmm. to see my former patients in Boston, now old, <laughs> to see them go gray. Wow. When I took care of them as children, <laughs> it's very, very weird. Uh, but but the, the beauty, and it's interesting because some of them were so young when I took care of them that they don't really remember me very much. Mm-hmm. But grandma sends me pictures. <laughs> 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 the 
of, of, of their, their, their son or daughter and the grandchildren. Mm-hmm. So I get this sort of look at uh, lives that you wouldn't have guessed, like a patient of mine who still has uh, tet with pulmonary atresia and MAPCAS. Mm-hmm. That was in the days before, you know, we unifocalize or anything. And he, he has got a wonderful job and a thriving family and having a good quality of life. And, mm-hmm. who, and you also, if you, when you see what bad happens when they're adults, I think it, it tells you more about what you need to do at the very early stages of their encounters. Mm-hmm. as a fetus or newborn or whenever you first meet them. Yeah, it's it's amazing actually because of course in fellowship we see patients and often in their most sickest time in the CICU or uh, when we're close to getting them to home, but maybe we won't see them actually be discharged. Having that reminder of you know, seeing patients in clinic and seeing them being productive members of society, happy, you know, living good lives is really, really rewarding. And it's a great reminder for those comparisons that you have of these really sick patients. You don't know what's going to happen with them. You're right. And it is a challenge for your generation because as we've gotten more and more able to do complex things and we've gotten more survival to handle the complexity of the work, mm-hmm. we have to chop it into small time intervals. Yeah. And to, to find another way of creating that longitudinal experience with single patients in a way that's meaningful mm-hmm. so that, that you can really learn and make it iterative and heuristic, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you, you keep watching over and over again and you keep seeing what you should do to, to um, do a better job of secondary prevention. And I think sometimes it can be a little bit challenging knowing that transition because we're trained pediatricians, most of us, and we see patients until they're, you know, maybe up until their 20s. But when they actually transition to an adult primary care doctor, for example, I don't think that we necessarily do the best job in being able to make that transition as smooth as possible. How would you help or what advice would you have for us, as you mentioned, in the era of survivorship, make that transition as smooth as possible? Well, I've, I've sort of started the Center for Healthy Adolescent Transition at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. Uh, And I created it for the whole institution. So it would have enough resources to do a really good job Mm -hmm. uh, to help at least transfer them to a secure primary medical home that has access to the subspecialists they need because they get lost in that system. But what I've done even more than that is when I have sometimes talked to parents of a fetus, I, you know, before all the drama starts and we're sort of talking about what the life is going to be like, I start to emphasize is how they need to uh, accelerate the development of executive functioning and how they need to have the child take on responsibilities early mm-hmm. and 
why they are going to need to be fully independent at a certain age and to work on it continually. And I build that into my my office visits all Mm -hmm. along. It doesn't take a lot of time. You can do little bits every time. And then to, to start to tell them, number one, often they stop seeing their pediatrician when they don't need their immunizations anymore. But you got to, if you can have partnership with the pediatrician and have the family understand, you know, sort of that role. But even if they have lost contact with the primary provider, to start talking to them about 15 or 16 about how medicine is different and how they can't get care if they don't have a good primary uh, provider who's going to help them with access. And also that the primary provider does a lot of things they're used to the subspecialists doing, mm-hmm. but adult subspecialists don't do. And they need to be fully informed about that's how it rolls uh, before they get up to 18 and get used to that idea. And if possible, if they don't have a primary provider already, get them hooked up with one while the subspecialist is still, the pediatric on the pediatric side is still there and can help that primary provider get oriented to the, the patient and what their care needs are. Yeah, thank you so much for bringing that up because I couldn't agree more with regards to patients sometimes not seeing their pediatrician sometimes for years, it seems like. Right. And we really need that collaboration and we need the support of the pediatrician as well in caring for the patient's needs while we can help care from a cardiac perspective as well. And that partnership is really important. And one other thing I also wanted to mention, what you said about the uh, interaction that you have with the patients from a younger age, it's so important because sometimes, and I'm sure this happens all the time, is we'll have patients who are, you know, young teen, maybe 11, 12, and they won't have any idea about what their heart lesion is. They won't even have to begin to know anything about what it was or really what their experience was. And that can be a little bit shocking and just shows, you know, we need to start that work from an early age, just like you said. And, you know, when you, when you present a teenager with all that information in one big lump, they have severe GERD, you know, but if you give them little bites of it throughout their childhood and they can take pride in having mastered knowing the name of their disease and that sort of thing as they go along, it's much more tolerable. And what I've started to do that's very enlightening is starting telehealth visits with patients about a year or two before they transfer to adult medicine and literally just sort of orient them into how adult medicine works them and what kind of cardiologist they're going to need and how to know if they're getting the right care and just sort of the the logistics of managing their care not their disease that's their own pediatric cardiologist but just you know what's it like on the other side because a lot of pediatric cardiologists don't know they don't know how 
totally essential the primary care provider is in that those roles. So, you know, being able to do that and for, for young adults and, and late teens, telehealth is sort of the place they feel safest. And mm-hmm. so they, they divulged things to me. They didn't tell their pediatric cardiologist that they're about to run off with their boyfriend to a state that doesn't have much in the way of services. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, and I think just like you mentioned, that's amazing because that helps these young adults slash adults become advocates for their own health. And if we don't really enforce that at a relatively young age, when will that happen? You know, it'll be too late. They'll be lost in the system, just like you said. And then we have those situations when adults come and they haven't seen a cardiologist in five, six years, and they have significant residual disease. And we're like, what, where do we even begin here? You know? Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and they just, if you lay all of that on them in a short period of time, they just get depressed and, and the avoidance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, exactly. <laughs> wow, thank you so much. I mean, that is some really instrumental work that you're doing um, with this transition. And I'm certainly going to take some of those pointers that you mentioned in terms of starting at a, at a younger age and short bursts of this information and just continue to build on it in their visits and teaching them adulting exactly just they need somebody it doesn't have to be the pediatric cardiologist Mm -hmm. somebody sit down to this is how it works yeah this is what you're going to have to do exactly I also wanted to hear, I know we briefly heard about your experience and you pursued fellowship in cardiology at Boston Children's and Mass Gen Hospital. Tell me about your experience at the beginning of your fellowship and kind of what things were like, how it was like working with Dr. Nadas. It was, it was something I had never experienced before. Uh, he was very much in the old European style, and uh, he was very directive. He was—he did not mince words. He was tough. He didn't like to be—he didn't like to to be uh, opposed. But he had this uncanny idea about what people should do in their lives. So. Because I had done phonocardiography, mm-hmm. and in fact, the reason he offered me the fellowship when I was only a medical student was I was arguing about the second heart sound and how much it could move with an atrial septal defect. So he, he, he loved phonocardiography. So I was in my first month or two of fellowship and he said, you know, you do sound waves and there's this thing called ultrasound and that's what you're going to do. <laughs> yes, wow. sir. Yes. Put me in the briar patch, please. <laughs> and, uh, and so, uh, you know, he really, he, he was very supportive, tough style. And, um, and, and if you did cross him, you were in trouble for, Quite some time. I did that once. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So then during your fellowship, you were studying and you were essentially building the 
beginnings of echocardiography in the field. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Obviously, echocardiography is one of our, I mean, it's our main tool that we use in congenital heart disease. I, that in, in itself is an understatement when I say that. But can you paint a picture of what it was like when you were developing the beginnings of this? Like what, what tools would you use when you were seeing patients? Well, before we had ultrasound, it was phonocardiograms. We had pulse wave recordings. We had recordings of wall motion at the apex of mm-hmm. the chest, <laughs> LV apex, uh, and looked at A waves and rapid filling waves and all of those things with a, you know, a um, with a transducer that just detected wall motion uh, wow. on the chest wall. Yeah, we could do all that, and 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 vectors. Um, so that's what we had. Fluoroscopy was big in the days. I ju- had just finished those days, fortunately. Thanks to fluoroscopy, I think I've got, been fluoroscoped 40 times <laughs> in my youth. Every other week, I'd see those red goggles. That, oh, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, it's a wonder I don't glow in the dark. Um, <laughs> but but um, that's what we had. And then when I got my first echo machine and it was literally a mode, which means I saw like little fingers moving like this and I had to sweep them manually across the screen while I held a camera uh, uh, lens uh, shutter open. Wow. And timing it, timing it, you know, manually. So that was fun. Uh, and I had to roll the film uh, myself and develop the film myself and then hold up to, to the light and see that I'd left the lens cap on. Then I have to do the whole thing over again. And uh, I, I showed in the Taosik lecture the equivalent of the little machine I had. And it was from a grant from the Massachusetts Heart Association uh, for $15,000. And half of that bought the machine and the other half was my salary for the year. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Now, before you think that's pitiful, in present value dollars, that would be about $53,000. Not too shabby. Not too shabby at all. That's great. And I mean, to think that changes in the past, you know, few decades that you've seen in in echocardiography that you pioneered, it's, it is just incredible. What, you know, what we're used to as trainees now, it's so different. How has that changed for trainees? And what is your opinion on that? Well, I, you know, the, the most stark thing from the time I began was, it's amazing what you can figure out, even with a little pin light inside a cave, you know, if mm-hmm. you if you can integrate the different images in your head, you can you you can learn a lot of things, but you can't show it to anybody. So if you wanted the surgeon to go in the operating room and you can tell there's a straddling AV valve, they have to take your word for it. Well, that didn't that that was that was a heavy lift. <laughs> wow. Now 
the exquisite information that you can get. Uh, and I think, you know, the fun people are going to have about knitting together the, the anatomy, the movement, and the electrophysiology, that all works together. That's going to be so much fun. So we had fun then in the sense that literally every day we discovered something. And, you know, the, with the, the Cath people, you know, sort of competing with what we might have missed and then we would try to figure out what they might have missed and uh, <laughs> then go and look at Van Prague's yellow buckets and the specimens and figure out how to do things. Uh, it, 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 was an, it was an exciting time. That's why I, I really, it, it was just very useful for me to also run the intensive care unit because I was in the OR with the patient that I had declared what they had, nervously throwing darts in the, in the pump room. It's <laughs> casting me saying, ay, 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 we have a problem. <laughs> what did I miss? Oh no! Well, no, no. And I was I was going to ask you about that as well. I mean, you were the director of one of the first echocardiography labs in the nation, and also the first medical director of the CICU at Boston Children's. I mean, that is incredible. <laughs> How did you lead into the role or the position of being director of the CICU? Castaneda and Natus had had a conversation about it. I, I wasn't included. I had no, I, I did not see this coming. Um, and I was in that third year position where I was, I, I had to have a job and I was oh, oh so anxious. I, I feel for all fellows going through that. We all go through it. It's, we think that, uh, you know, our doomsday thoughts get us about two o'clock in the morning <laughs> and, and uh, we don't realize it's going to turn out okay. <laughs> so, so I think it wasn't until the spring when uh, Natus uh, just sort of told me that that's what was going to happen. I jumped at it because it was not it was not clear who was going to pay my salary once my grant was over. And I didn't want to take any chances. And it, it worked anyway because I, the people I was echoing were people who uh, were going to have surgery. And I was very much invested in that. And so it, it just worked. And it meant so much. It sort of tied my two worlds together I, it wasn't two separate worlds it was it was sort of like two three quarters worlds and that's the the true continuity of care I mean you would diagnose these patients right. and then you'd be in the OR working with the, the surgeons as well and then you'd care for them post-operatively yeah yeah and, and and that's what I mean about that continuity of experience and you don't have to be the one right there but somehow or another we have to knit together the patient's experience because there's so much information that gets lost with, you know, the 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 turnover that that they experience, which is seeing maybe the same person two days if they're lucky. I mean, 
We, we have to learn how to manage that. Can you share with us? When you would come back with a patient from the operating room into the CICU in terms of surgical handoff and what the, that night would look like? I am in greatest awe in respect of nurses. And one of the things that allowed me to be something that had never existed before in a longstanding ICU where in the, before I started, the only thing that fellows were allowed to do was after they had gotten the patient settled and had run a rhythm strip, we were allowed to step forward, look at the rhythm strip and declare the rhythm and step back. And so all of a sudden now I'm the director. Well, the way you go into a fixed element like that, that works as a team and has been really tight, and you're a a xenolith, you're a foreign element coming in, is great respect. (laughs) (laughs) I was very, I mean, I... I will, I, I will tell a university president exactly what I think, but I will suck up to a nurse big time <laughs> and, and respect what their knowledge is, really mm-hmm. respect it. So uh, as they were getting everything all hooked up, I didn't have anything, you know, any, any role in that. But then, you know, I, it was me and the chief uh the surgical chief resident, and we were like uh, twins. And we worked together, we covered each other, we, you know, we spelled each other at night, and it was, it was just me, so there were no fellows initially with me. Mm-hmm. So it was me and the surgeons, and as a result, I think of my old, old friends, the surgeons who are now spread all over the world are like, my very best buddies uh, because we we were in the trenches together and so in the CICU I know you mentioned that so when you stepped into that role was the CICU at that time primarily cared for by the surgeons what was that balance like that was surgeons and nurses okay and they would manage the patients post-operatively well once I was there I did speaking about how I approached it initially to gain their trust and then when they saw that that I was competent, when I passed their tests, <laughs> but but the other thing was what what Castaneda wanted, and he was very supportive of of me, and they knew that. So it it, it was it was it was pretty easy. I, I didn't have any problems with people challenging me, but it it's it was just so important to have that alignment. What Castaneda had wanted from me was that chief residents came in every six months, but then they leave and another one would come without that experience. And Mm -hmm. he wanted someone to carry over that experience. So there'd be a longitudinality of of the program as it grew as it grew. And and so that that was my role and that's what I did. So I I accumulated the experience and passed it on to the next chief resident. And then we worked together closely. And first I'd be doing some coaching. And then after I'd learned from them. And what did you say are some of the biggest challenges that you had when you were in stepping into this role? 
sleeping. <laughs> I was so tired. <laughs> I have pictures of me at parties. I was always asleep at parties <laughs> if I ever got there because I was on call every night, you know. And post-operatively, when these patients would come up, can you give us an idea of what kind of chemodynamic monitoring they would have so that we can <laughs> compare to, to what we have now? Well, when I first started, there was one pressure monitor. And when a, a patient, the next patient went to the OR, they took the pressure monitor with them. So we were like mercury columns. <laughs> It was, like, it was so. It was. It was just so amazing, uh, but that didn't last too long. And then you know we we had pressure monitors. We put in the surgeons would put lines uh, out the pulmonary artery through the RV outflow tract, and we would pull them out uh, after a while. So I had SVC pulmonary artery lines to look at shunts and arterial lines and all of that pretty quickly. We, we had a good system going. Clearly from what you described, you formed a partnership and a collaboration with the surgeons and that really built the foundation for training really. And has that collaboration or that relationship in terms of that post-operative care changed since then at all? Or has it only continued to grow? What have you noted? I think every institution's different. Uh, I, I think people who work together with the support of people at the top uh, really get very confident with each other. Uh, I've, I've uh, been to places where that role of the perioperative care was really done by intensivists and not the cardiologist. Uh, and that works well too. I, you know, it was it was the opposite of what I, my experience had been. So I sort of went in with a lot of skepticism. But then when I saw what they did, I I realized that if you do it a lot and you focus on it, you become a little bit of like what I was. So I I think. The important thing is that there is an intentional partnership that is supported by the chairs and the chiefs on down. And thinking back about your time and training as well, do you have any paramount moments of learning that you can that stick out patient experience or something that you learned, you know, at two in the morning? Well, I remember running um, I had an apartment right beside the hospital mm -hmm. and one one of the 2 a.m calls was a uh, code I didn't know who it was and as I ran toward the um, floor it was it was on the on, on the step down unit I I was going through a list of who I thought it was and it was a perfectly healthy, three-year-old with only a ductus who in those days everybody came in like one or two days before to get their lines in and everything and he had somehow played with his IV lines blown into his uh, central line 
and as a like a bubble, he thought, and it went across his his Peyton Freeman of Valley, and he arrested and died. And it just shocked me that you think you can predict what's going to happen to people, but you just it's it's like it's like surfing. You you can't fix your feet. It's not it's it, it's it's not like skiing where you get to kick out of your skis. It you've got to keep moving in response to what's happening and mm-hmm. and, and understand that you the future is not all that predictable. So that's what that's when you say well, there were plenty of things I learned, but that that one was a light bulb flash bulb moment. Yes. I think, wow, I mean, that is so shocking. And just like you said, I mean, I think uh, you said it perfectly. I mean, we like to, we were very calculated and we think, okay. And just as you said, you know, you were thinking of the list of patients it could have been. And we like to think that we can predict what will happen. And it's often those patients who, like you said, are perfectly healthy or the one that's, you know, least on your row of being the sickest and likely to arrest. And those are the ones that will surprise you and, you know, catch you off guard. And I know for, for me, at least I I can remember, you know, an experience that I had um, when I was a first year where something wasn't quite going right with a patient, but the patient still looked very well. So, you know, we were going to continue to watch the patient, but it was a Norwood, it was an interstage patient. And none of us felt good about the fact that something wasn't right. And we were thinking, we're going to figure it out we did some limited workup and nothing was out of place. And of course, 3 a.m., the code bell goes off. And I remember being in my, I couldn't, I just knew where to run. I didn't even look at my pager. I mean, I, I looked, I see this is the unit. I know which patient this is. And, and it was that, I mean, it was that patient. Luckily they were okay, but it just shows you know, when you think something is not right to trust it, but at the same time, it, it could very well be something you weren't even predicted. And it, it's interesting. I, I totally agree. And when, um, when I was chair and I couldn't really do ICU work anymore, but I wander in the ICU because I felt at home there. And I noticed that without, uh, I, for some reason, my head always turned towards somebody who was sick. And I realized that, that my my reptilian brain was responding to uh, increased heart rate with very little RR variability. Uh, that sort of loss of beat to beat variability and heart rate. And it's interesting how, you know, I'll sit in M&M conferences and I'll, there'll be the whole discussion about uh, how everything seems to be okay. And I'm staring at the heart rate that continues to rise and continues to rise. And I'm wanting to scream, no, no. <laughs> but I think, you know, those are the kind of things, again, you, you may not even be aware, but they, it gives you that feeling. That feeling is based on something that you're recognizing that you can't quite figure out exactly what it is, but it, it's, not, it's not magical it's really something that 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 you're noticing whether it's peripheral coolness or i still think my 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 go-to thing is really heart rate yeah and like you said you don't sometimes you don't even notice what you're doing you know when you're 
you arrive somewhere, you have to figure out what's going on in the situation. You're looking at the monitors in your head, you know, it's running a million miles an hour trying to figure things Something's out. Something's drawing you to a certain place. Exactly. Beep, beep, beep. <laughs> Yeah, that's what it is for me anyway. We had that in the old days when you ask what kind of technology. That's one thing that we could use and it's still good. Yes, exactly. And we were taught, I mean, first thing, heart rate, the most sensitive marker, that should always be the first thing that you should be looking at and never discount that change in that vital sign. And longitudinally. Because if you see it only for a short period of time, but if you see the whole thing mapped out, and that we can do now. Well, I could actually chat with you for hours and hours about your experience. I would love to, actually. It's been really nice to hear and really inspirational and just enlightening to hear about your experience and everything that you have accomplished and contributed to the field of pediatric cardiology. So thank you so much for sharing that. And I've loved the questions you've asked because it really took me back to the things I care about. So thank you. (laughs) I wanted to finish with one last question. What is something that you have in terms of advice for young fellows and trainees and junior faculty as they're embarking on their career? Well, the... I, I, I was very unusual in that I didn't have a clue as to what life was like. <laughs> but I have always done what was interesting to me and what I liked. Uh, and there were times that I had, would have thought that was a mistake. But it turned out fine. And I had a good time. And at some point, you have, you have choices to make. Do I want to do something that's safe, but I'm not that excited about? Or do I want to take a chance? And the thing that I came to a realization of is I didn't need to be a success. And I probably wouldn't starve to death. But I didn't want to spend my life doing something that was drudgery because that would be the worst outcome. And I think having that sense, even if you have to hire out, you know, as a hospitalist for a period of time, you don't find the exact, I know this is a hard job market because of the, the international finances right now. But just, just go with what, you enjoy if if you've got the choice and and enjoy your life while you've while you're young and then I tell myself to enjoy my life while I'm old so I (laughs) see no alternative to enjoying yourself and just throwing yourself into it and because if you do that you'll be good at it if you're good at it you'll enjoy it more incredibly wise words Well, that was quite the interview, and I think it lived up to the marketing. There were so many fascinating parts of this conversation, and I suspect that you were all struck by her initial introduction to pediatric cardiology, by herself having a catheterization by Dr. Tausig when Dr. Williams was a child. Dr. Williams reminded us all of how powerful our interactions with patients can be, and how we all look for inspiring figures in our lives, as Dr. Williams did when meeting Dr. Tausig 
who clearly had such an important impact on her life view. I thought her comments about how important it is to consider the impact we may have on children and families by what and how we say things to them to be of great importance, and is probably something we should all be more mindful of. Finally, I thought her last comments on taking a chance in life and searching for that thing that is not drudgery for you, to quote Joseph Campbell, following one's bliss is probably the best way to live one's life, for that will likely offer anyone the greatest chance to enjoy one's life and find it meaningful. I am so appreciative to Dr. Williams for sharing her wisdom with us today and Dr. Pradden for her insightful interview. To conclude this special replay episode of PD Heart Pediatric Cardiology Today with living legend Dr. Roberta Williams, we end with the magnificent singing of the American operatic legend Richard Tucker. Mr. Tucker sang at the Metropolitan Opera for 30 years, from his debut in 1945 till his death in 1975. I've chosen to highlight this wonderful singer in person because this week in New York City is the Richard Tucker Opera Gala at the newly opened David Geffen Hall at Lincoln Center. Mr. Tucker's family established this music foundation to honor the memory of this magnificent artist in providing scholarships to young American opera singers to help support their careers. And this year's recipient will be Ms. Angel Blue, who we featured on the podcast previously. Today we hear Mr. Tucker sing Cello e Mar from the opera La Gioconda, which was the opera of his debut and which catapulted his career into superstardom. Thank you very much to Dr. Roberta Williams for joining us, and thanks also to my co-host, Dr. Pradden, for interviewing her. I hope everybody enjoyed it, and I look forward to seeing you next week with a fresh episode.
Oh, my God. 